I think we need 2024 to be the watershed election that's going to smash the ANC's majority and bring change. And that change will come from within existing political parties and maybe some new players. And I think it will involve some elements of the ANC, which is why it's going to be very interesting to see how the center holds the ANC after this conference. I don't think it's going to hold. I think it's it's coming down to some final showdown between the RET faction and the reformers. And either way, someone's going to be leaving that conference later this year with plans to form something new or break away or do something more drastic. Hello, everybody. This is Soli Mueng. Welcome to the number one media company, Wellview. This is where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our own worldview. Today, we have Jonathan Hiazan. I am very excited for this discussion because John is the leader of the opposition parties or formation in South Africa. He's the official uh, opposition party in South Africa. And we're having a lot of problems every day in the governing party. We have elections in about 24 months time. We want to know a lot about whether John and his party are preparing for this. Is he going to be the next president of South Africa? What is going on? Okay, let me not even go in there. Uh, John, as many of you might know, he was for quite a number of years uh, the chief whip of the main opposition in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance. He became president of the party a, a number of years ago. I'm keen to know, of course, what, what it's been like, the ride so far. John, and uh, John, welcome. Thank you again for accepting to be part of this discussion. Thank you, Sully. It's great to be with you and on this incredible platform of Worldview. Thank you. Let's start with uh, what's going on with Ramaphosa. Is it Dollar Gate, Papala Gate? Is it uh, Farm Gate? What is going on there? And what is your view? And how? What should happen? Well, I mean, I think that it's a completely unsatisfactory state of affairs, and um, frankly, it stinks to high heavens. Uh, the fact that the president has yet to take the country into his confidence around the key questions, I think is putting even more blood in the water around this particular issue, particularly given the fact that this is a president who's predicated his entire presidency on being seen as the clean alternative to the decades of state capture and his predecessor, Mr. Zuma. It's been his leitmotif, uh, clean, accountable government. And so this right. doesn't go well for him. And I think that he's being disingenuous as well. On Sunday, he said he's never stolen money. No one's accusing him of stealing money. People want to know how a large sum of foreign currency found its way into the furniture at his home, where it came from, who paid the money to him, why was it not banked, was it declared to SARS, why was no police to, uh, case open? That's not accusing the president of theft. It's asking legitimate questions. And it comes back to the first principle, Solly, of equality before the law, which means that the law must apply to everybody in the country equally, whether you're an ordinary citizen or the president. The South African Reserve Bank controls and the Financial Intelligence Center controls, as well as the South African Revenue Service regulations, must apply equally to everybody. And the president needs to come clean on this quickly because in the absence of his commentary or the absence of his side of the story, that vacuum is being filled by speculation, and that speculation is not good. Yeah. Look, the NC is heading towards an elective conference in December, John. We all know that. And we know that all these people who've been coalesced around former President Zuma are gunning for him. They really want him out. And we also know that Arthur Fraser, who laid the charges against Zuma, is not an, an unaligned person. He's clearly aligned to Zuma. He's a man who, uh, for mysterious reasons, released Zuma from prison. He's also, I, don't, I have no idea why Ramaphosa retained this man when he became president. Do you think it could be because Ramaphosa knew this guy, knew some things about Ramaphosa? Like, he, it was like a matter of keeping the enemy inside the tent, pissing out, or then and the enemy out, pissing in. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I've often described Arthur Fraser as the J. Edgar Hoover of the South African political scene. As you may recall, J. Edgar Hoover was unmovable because he had the files on every president. And that's why he lasted so long as the head of the FBI. And I've no doubt Mr. Fraser's got files on everybody in South Africa because he was running the principal agent network. But here's the problem that the president has, Solly, mm -hmm. is that he cannot come out now and say that Mr. Fraser is a bad man. Because yeah. just last year, when we legally challenged Mr. Fraser's appointment as the head of the Correctional mm -hmm. Services mm -hmm. Department, the president himself 
deposed an affidavit to the court in which he extolled Mr. Fraser's virtues and yeah. set out why he was the right man for the job and why there were no, these allegations unproven. He can't now turn around and say, Mr. Fraser's a terrible man, when a year ago, he himself signed an affidavit to the courts that this is a, a good, a fit and proper person. So he's in a dilemma now. I have no doubt that this has got to do with the ANC's internal factional battles. And I think there's going to be a lot more that emerges in the run-up to the election. Right. But what we have to do is divorce the personalities from both the consequences as well as the accuser. It shouldn't matter that it's Arthur Fraser that's made that. I think we need to look and examine the facts. And those facts need to be tested. And uh, they shouldn't just be discounted because they happen to come from Mr. Fraser. Hello, everyone. If you're interested in advertising on Worldview, drop us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com. We will send you an advertisement guide, which will include the rates and the process involved. A typical shout out for your company or project will be between 45 and 60 seconds. By advertising on our platform, you'll be supporting a company that wants to improve the public narrative. Once again, send us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description below. Now, Back to the interview. Yeah, but I mean, because it's Arthur Fraser, and we know his alignment politically within the factions of the African National Congress, we should be mindful, especially you as leader of the main opposition in, in parliament, that uh, there is a, 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 a seemingly a growing a, a possibility that Ramaphosa will be, will be removed as president. And if he does get removed, we're going to have, God knows, I don't know, replacing him. What would that mean for opposition, uh, positioning in South Africa and for the elections in 2024? Look, I think that we all wanted to give the president the benefit of the doubt. And I think that the, the problem here is that he is not defending his corner and not coming out with the facts. And right. that's putting everyone in a difficult position. We can't divorce, uh, we have to divorce the personality from the principles here. And the principles are that we must have equality before the law. And as Mokweng Mokweng so eloquently set out, in the Nkandla judgment, the role of the president in society at the apex of our political system, um, yeah. it requires an extra duty of care and diligence to not only be seen to be upholding the law, but also to be doing it. And that's a dilemma we find ourselves in. So, yes, the consequences in the ANC are ghastly, but you can't keep somebody in office just because you don't like the alternatives and no. turn a blind eye to the fact that they have done wrong. Um, I think the president can survive this if he comes out quickly and makes a full disclosure, takes the public into his confidence and moves on. But the longer he remains hiding uh, behind an investigation into an, if something that happened two years ago, mm. um, I, I think that it, it, it's putting more and more blood in the water. And he's giving a stick to his opponents to beat him with. So yeah. believe me, um, I, you know, I'm very concerned about what the ANC is. And that's why I believe that that we have to move past the ANC for South Africa to survive uh, going forward. But you can't say, well, because we don't like some of the other candidates or the potential mm -hmm. that we will turn a blind eye because then it means that the law is selective in terms of mm -hmm. who it is applied to, and then we're on dangerous ground. So, I mean, uh, whatever happens in December is going to have huge ramifications for the political scene in South Africa. Uh, potentially at least if Ramaphosa gets removed we have no idea if there's going to be an ANC president Ram, uh, what's his Mahashola from the Free State um, Kize, God, or Kize yeah. are you guys in the Democratic Alliance looking at these scenario plays are you saying to yourself scenario A Ramaphosa remains president of the ANC slash South Africa this is how we're going to position ourselves for 2024 slash uh, or, or scenario two, somebody else from the RIT takes over, and is are you guys are you guys thinking in those lines? Well, for me, Solly, what's going to be important? It's going to, I think, answer the dilemma that analysts, the media, and us as the opposition have been wanting to see: is what is the balance of forces in the ANC between the RIT faction and what you know the Ramaphosa faction? Right. And I think that we're finally going to be able to see that in visual numbers that takes place. At at that conference. That is because I've, I've always said that we need a realignment in South African politics mm -hmm. and that realignment has to be around values and principles and the ANC has to split or be bought below 50% for the 
for us to bring change in South Africa. Nothing right. is possible if the ANC stays above 50% because we're going to continue on the same trajectory. There may be different people at the top, but the policies will remain. Our economy will continue to stagnate. We will eventually reach an intersection between what we're paying on social grants and our income and, uh, and our debt servicing costs will grow up. I think we need 2024 to be the watershed election that's going to smash the ANC's majority and bring change. And that change will come from within existing political parties and maybe some new players. And I think it will involve some elements of the ANC, which is why it's going to be very interesting to see how the center holds the ANC after this conference. I don't think it's going to hold. I think it's it's coming down to some final showdown between the RET faction and the reformers. And either way, someone's going to be leaving that conference later this year with plans to form something new or break away or do something more drastic. Right. Look, they've just announced a 1.5%, I think, increase in the in GDP in economic growth in South Africa. Do you uh, give credit to the African National Congress for this growth? No, I don't. I think it's a, res it's a result of the rising commodity prices uh, in China and around the world. And I think it's going to be completely wiped out, unfortunately, in the next two quarters. I believe South Africa is heading into a, uh, what I call the winter of discontent. And it's a toxic uh, mix of rising inflation, which is also a global issue, but it's going to land up here in South Africa, spiraling food prices as a result of uh, the war in Ukraine and, and other, uh, other factors, um, massive fuel price increases, and of course, blackouts. Uh, we're going to see far more uh, Eskom blackouts as we go into winter. They're struggling to keep the lights on in summer. In winter, it's going to be virtually impossible. And of course, the fuel price is a knock-on on that because we all know they're burning millions of liters of diesel. That right. mixed with the massive unemployment, hunger and poverty that is in South Africa, I really suspect that we're going to see scenes that we saw in July last year isolated in KwaZulu-Natal spreading around the country as this winter of discontent continues. Um, there's nothing in the South African economy that shows me that the fundamentals for growth have been relayed. There's no major reforms that have happened that would set the table for that growth to, to occur. And so I think uh, it, it is a, it's a once-off spark, small right. as it is, and welcome as it is, I will say. Um, it's as a result of the rising cost of commodities. And as China starts to slow down and COVID starts to reappear there, I think it's going to, it's going to disappear. There are rumors out there, John, that the, the DA is not um, excluding a possibility of a merger with a faction of the ANC. Is it true? I mean, are you guys like so desperate to become the leaders of South Africa that you will align with some people from the ANC to become, to get in there? What's going on? Well, I believe that there is a realignment of South African politics that needs to take place and a breaking of the logjam. But that can only happen if the ANC is bought below 50%. So I don't think there's any game in town if the ANC remains above 50%. And as I've said, the trajectory that we're currently on, which is a downward trajectory, will continue. I do believe there has to be a realignment, and the realignment has to be around values. And those include constitutionalism and respect for the rule of law, um, non-racialism, a social market economy that accepts the state is an actor and has a role to play in the economy, but it must know what that role is and it shouldn't impede other sectors and should use the private sector as a partner for growth and job creation. And finally, building of a capable state, which is free of a corruption and is downsized to be able to achieve what needs to be done. I think those are the, the core foundational values around which a realignment will take place. So there's right. going to be a number of scenarios that take that, that happen after the 2024 election. I am, uh, we're working very hard to bring the ANC below 50%, but what we're also trying to do is demonstrate that coalitions are a way to govern effectively. Coalitions have had a very bad rap in South Africa over the last five years, mm -hmm. and the coalitions that we've set out to establish in Johannesburg uh, in Chwane and Ekuleni particularly, uh, I think are going to be very, very important to demonstrate to citizens that a coalition is possible. I don't believe there's going to be a party that gets a majority in the next election, and I think we're going to be forced to be around the coalition table. But if you're saying to me the ANC in its current form, absolutely not. I mean, I don't want to be sitting around the table with the likes of Ace Magashule, Didi Mabuza, and the others. There's no deal then, because what you will then do is do make the mistake that the MDC made, uh, in uh, in Zimbabwe, where they went in and, and actually just 
breathed life back into Zanupiev and allowed them to carry on their, their looting and their tyranny. And at the cost. But I do believe that there is coming a time in South Africa where people who may be wearing diff different party political T-shirts now are going to be forced by circumstance to sit around a table and try and hammer out a new consensus uh, and a new reform agenda for moving the country forward. And we're hoping that the examples that we've set in, in these metros now uh, are going to be able to lead the way towards that. But, uh, John, the coalition experience that we have in South Africa to date is a post-electoral coalition arrangement. I would like us to talk about a pre-election. For now, my understanding is that you, John, the leader of the DA, hopes that if you win, you might become the president, if you come up with a big um, uh, numbers out, or, out after the electoral lotto of 2024. My money would like to become president. Mashaba would like to, be, to become president. If they don't, even if they don't say it so loudly, and all the other opposition parties, uh, present and future, want to see. Let's go into the elections, and this is what's been happening up to now. But then they, everybody comes out with little part numbers, and they end up being. Um, that if you look at Patricia Delil, offered a little position as a minister. She forgets good whatever party she was before she came in there. She's now d d playing on the ANC's mandate. Would you consider working with other like-minded people in South Africa, known and unknown, to form a coalition ahead of, 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 of 2024 and, and agreeing to stand behind the, the person, man or woman, who, who stands the best chance to lead South Africa into the future? Rather than saying, let, let, let's go into the elections first as a DA and we'll see whom we align with. Are you prepared to do a pre-electoral uh, coalition? Solly, we'll do anything that sees the ANC unseated and that's in the best interest of South Africa. And I mean, the, the scenario you're talking about was used in Kenya as well, and the Umbrella Coalition, et cetera, that contested under the one, uh, the one banner. Right. Uh, there are lessons, though, in our history that, that doesn't always work out for the best. And the example I give you is uh, what was subsequently termed the collision for change in KwaZulu-Natal between the Democratic Party and the IFP. Uh, we went into that election as the co coalition for change and ended up losing votes. The DA traditional voters didn't like the IFP stance on Ulundi and IFP traditional voters didn't like the IFP working with people who didn't want Ulundi to be the capital. And right. the, the net effect was that we both lost votes and, uh, and the rest is history. And the ANC were able to take control of the province. So I think it will have to be very carefully looked at and calibrated and a case made for you know, folding your identity in. Sometimes the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. And we need to accept that, that each party task in the election will be to go out and turn out their particular constituency mm -hmm. and bring as many chips back to the table as right. possible. Um, but, you know, it, as I said, there, there may be a pragmatic approach that, that, that emerges and mm -hmm. I would be quite willing to sit down and have the case made and, and, and make something. And I'm not obsessed about being the president of the Republic of South Africa. I'm obsessed about us getting the ANC out of power and us bringing in some form of government that's going to be able to drive the reform agenda that's so necessary to get the country off this high debt, high low growth, high unemployment right. and high poverty trajectory. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm open to, to, to looking at any means to insert the ANC, but it must not come at the cost of our, of our greater project. Are you prepared to work uh, with Action SA, with the One Movement South Africa, with the EFF, Hodemisa's uh, party, Bantu, uh, the Kutas party? Uh, are there people that you are more yes, likely of course, to there, be there are people we already, there, there are already where people we're working with in Janice. We've got a nine-party coalition in right. Joburg. Right. Uh, we've got a, an eight-party coalition in Ekoleni. Um, we're busy involved in Nelson Mandela Bay with 10 parties there. Uh, but, sorry, the big lesson we did learn, though, from the 2016 experiment right. is that the coalitions have to be based on values and principles, uh -huh. a shared program of action, a clear delineation of the red lines that would not be crossed, right. and, and the purpose. So yeah. forming a ganging up a coalition just for the coalition's sake doesn't always work out. And we saw what happened in, in Joburg, particularly, where the EFF tail ended up wagging the dog. And you started to see some of the, the things that we, that we are very opposed to that don't sit in with our values and principles uh, being applied in the council uh, and rent seeking starting to take place 
um, because the EFF were able to hold such sway over the then mayor. Uh, and, you know, we ended up, you know, with the mayor that was working harder to keep the EFF on board than his own caucus. And it, you know, it, where there's not a values fit, I don't think it's sustainable. And I think that's why the coalitions that we have in place now, um, because the coalition negotiations started this time, not on positions, but on shared values, a program of action, behavior that would be acceptable and what would not be acceptable, and the party signing onto that has brought an element of far more stability than we've seen in the past, which is why we've been able to pass budgets now in all three of those municipalities, uh, despite significant uh, opposition, and particularly right. in Eppelini's case, where we ran a minority government, we were able to get these budgets passed because the parties understand and share these values. And I think that's important. Okay. But I, I will work with anybody who shares those values and principles. I would, I would, thank you, John. I would like to clarify one thing for me. There's a, percep a perception of that. Now, you mentioned the mayor of Johannesburg. Of course, we, everybody, people who know this, you know you're talking about him and Mashaba. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a person, perception of the, out there that Hemet Mashaba is being accused or has been accused by the Democratic Alliance for having gone out unilaterally to form some form of agreement untanned with the EFF. Was this, is this true? I mean, was the DA aware that in order to get things done in Johannesburg, there would have to be some kind of association with the devil between brackets? Or or did did were you guys surprised by him and Mashaba by Mashaba working with the EFL? Well, I think that there's a difference between working with and and getting done what needs to get done, and turning a blind eye to rent seeking and the type of things that the antithesis of your government. So we've seen now. I mean, it's been a matter of public record the Vanilla Fleet contract in Joburg, where there was huge interference from. No, but was there agreement by the DA that there would be some kind of coalition of sorts with the EFL? Yes, of course. Remember, Maimani negotiated that coalition okay. in 2016. It was, it was a negotiated thing. There was a press conference held where Maimani and Malema and others... But Maimani it was not an individual. He was a representative of the DA, right? Yes, of course. So okay. it was a decision made by the federal executive of the DA okay. and and case was made. And I'm saying to you, we learned to lesson in that and that... Mm -hmm. You know, when you get into bed with people who don't share your values and principles, it's going to end badly. And that's exactly what happened in Joburg. Okay. Now, before people start thinking that this is a, a sweetheart in, uh, interview, do you think this I is a sweetheart interview? I never expected a sweetheart interview from you. <laughs> don't, don't okay, you, don't, you don't feel this is a sweetheart interview, do you? Okay. Not at all. Okay, good. Uh, so you went to Ukraine recently and people were like, why in the world did you go to Ukraine when so much is, needs to be done in Cape Town, in KZN, and, and, and what is the report back and what what impact or influence did, was he hoping to have in Ukraine? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, I'd, I'd first all start by saying, Solly, that uh, just because you're focusing on one thing doesn't mean you don't care about others. As politicians, sure. you've got to focus on a, a variety of issues. And I think it's myopic to expect you to say, well, because, you know, there's a problem in, in a certain section of South Africa that you shouldn't care about, you know, other things that are happening elsewhere. Um, the war in Ukraine is going, is having, and is going to have a devastating impact on South Africa. And I think that people read uh, uh, Professor Gomedi's latest report that came out. South Africans are now starting to realize that this war is what's driving the cost of food going up, it's what's driving the cost of fuel going up, right. all of which affect every South African. But importantly as well, it's going to affect our food security. We were 80% of our fertilizer in South Africa comes from that region. And having been at Nampo this year and chatting to farmers, they're very worried. There's been a 300% increase in fertilizer costs yeah. um, that, that have come out there. So those things are going to have an impact on South Africa and on Africa. And I've always believed it's important to go to source, get as much information as possible, and bring that back to allow you to make informed decisions about the way forward. It, I think government should have been there. A government but have you done that, John? I mean, have you come back to say, okay, guys, I've just been to Ukraine. Because people, people seem to be just commenting on the, on the pictures you, of yourself posing and with, with bombs and whatever stuff. Have you come back to say, okay, I've just been to Ukraine, Ukraine. This is what I've seen. This is what I think. It, this are what I think yes, are the I've implications. Released, I've released a, a YouTube video, which is at okay. a large number of hits, where I set out very clearly the four Fs, food, 
fuel, fertilizer, and freedom, and wide impact on, on Africa and South Africa. And I would encourage you and viewers to go online. It's available on the DA's YouTube site and uh, to go and have a look at it because it sets up very clearly the case for what I've made a number of suggestions to the South African government about what needs to be done. One of these, and the most important for us, is for us to be pressurizing Russia to open the port of Odessa and stop the blockade so that we can get that grain and food out of there. Um, I think it's absolutely essential that we um, that we make sure that we are able to get that um, that that food and grains into South Africa as quickly as possible because it's what's driving the huge cost of uh, food and fuel. Sorry, I'm just plugging my computer in. I'm not disappearing. That was about to die. Um, and um, and so I, you know, I really think that. I think it was a cheap shot, frankly, of some okay. people. Yeah, you, you will get cheap shows in. Yeah, in I'm used to that. I mean, yeah. sorry, I mean, as I said, there's one way to avoid criticism in this world, and that's sit in your hands, do nothing, say nothing, and be Absolutely. nothing. And I think you know me. It's impossible for me to do any of those things. No, I don't um, want you I to shut up. Think that, I don't want you to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so, so sorry, uh, sorry, the other point uh, I, I do just want to make quickly is that, no. um, it, you know, I also think South Africa is on the wrong side of this issue. And I think it was important for Ukrainians to know because they're on the front lines of freedom in, in the world now, and they're fighting, the war may be happening there, but it's an ideological battle between totalitarianism and, and imperialism and right. democracy and freedom to choose. And I think it's important for them to know that not all South Africans agree with government's position on this matter. Sure. And many of them responded and said, well, what would South Africa expect us to do if one of its neighbors just rolled tanks over into one of its provinces and said, well, now we're taking over Limpopo or the Northern Cape or the Northwest. Right, right. I think that we would expect the world to, to come to our aid. And I think that's the big dilemma there. So I'm very right. glad I have no regrets about going. And I think in the final analysis, it's going to give me a position to be able to speak with some authority on the topic because I've actually been there and seen for myself. Well, some people say that you should have done the same thing uh, and gone to, to the Palestinian territories. What do you say to that? I've been to Palestine. I've been to Palestine. I was there four years ago. Um, I've, I've interacted with Palestinian NGOs, uh, Palestinian leaders. I've been there. Uh, I've been in Mozambique just this last weekend. I was in Somaliland uh, with the leaders of the opposition in Zimbabwe, uh, Tanzania, and Uganda discussing. What do, you think, what, do, what do you think should happen in the Palestinian story? Well, I think that we've got to make sure there is a two-state solution and it's got to be a de-escalation on both sides. And this is the thing that doesn't uh, that makes sense to me. We completely agree with government's official position on right. this matter about finding the two-state solution. A, a, a Israel that's able to live side by side with a free Palestine uh, and we've got to stop the aggression. War doesn't benefit anybody. And aggression, whether it's Israeli aggression or Palestinian aggression, is not going to resolve the issue. It's the same as in Ukraine. War is not the answer. Uh, but, got but, but, the, but if a two-state solution is no longer viable, I mean, Israel has been taking lots of chunks of lands from the Palestinian, John. Surely but maybe they need, that, they need a united be... country where everybody has the same rights. Would that? Because what are you going to do with all those illegal Israeli settlements on Palestinian land? Are you going to raise them off? You can't. Because no, but it's only part also. of a negotiated settlement, Solly, that, that, we, that we move to a position where borders are agreed on and that occupied territory is returned. Um, but it's also got to be a, a, a security. You can't have one country firing rockets into another. You can't have another country rolling tanks into... And, no. and no, no, when there's an agreement, no, hopefully there wouldn't be a need for people, anybody to be throwing bombs either way, right? I mean, there are well, victims on all sides. And, you know, I believe fundamentally that the Palestinians have a right to statehood and a right to exist and a right to self-determination uh, without being uh, compromised, just as much as I believe the Israelis should as well. But I, yeah. well, the one thing I do know with certainty is that violence is not going to be the, the, the solution there and that uh, it's going to complicate things even further. Okay. John, uh, you are the, um, the main op official opposition. I don't know where this term comes from, official opposition. It comes from official. the constitution. Oh, okay, official opposition. So this, South Africans are expecting you guys to be prepared, to, not to be a one issue party. And I, I'm not saying you are, because I don't think you are, but are you guys, thinking in terms of saying to South Africans, here is an alternative South Africa that touches on energy, education, health, social services, even be this very difficult topic, foreign 
there's relations of, with South Africa, of South Africa between, with relations between South Africa and the rest of the world, relations between South Africa and Africa, and I would like us to talk about that. So are you guys preparing a full picture of what a post-ANC South Africa would look like? Yes, Solly, and it's, it's a clear focus of the DA, and since I've become the leader, um, we've invested a lot of time in policy development, and we're releasing policies every couple of months around these key issues. Uh, we released our uh, our empowerment policy um, right. last year. Right. Um, we have released just a few uh, weeks ago a housing and energy policy as well as an immigration policy. And these are all available on our website and you know are going to be the basis of the manifesto for the alternative in South Africa. But far more important than that, Solly, is actually demonstrating this where we govern, which is why we're going to focus on the next year and a half and making sure that where we are in government, that people see, feel, and experience the DA difference. Uh, and so we're able to demonstrate it. So it's far more powerful to, to, to do rather than say. And that's why projects like the Conradi Park inclusionary housing project in Cape Town is so important because it is a life-size model of the DA's alternative where you don't consign poor families to the periphery and the urban edge. You bring them closer into the city in mixed-use developments in a public-private partnership that makes it sustainable. And we believe this is going to be the model for, for housing, for instance, going, going for, and it's, it's captured in our, in our policy. Um, we're absolutely not one-dimensional. And that's the other thing that frustrated me about the criticism of the trip as well. Sorry to go back to it. I said, yes, there are issues in South Africa, and I've been there. I was the only politician on the ground when the July unrest broke out. I went into Phoenix while the bullets were flying, while the shopping centers were burning. I went all around Durban then, uh, just as I was in KZN when the floods broke out. And Yeah, there was well, a problem with the, when, when you went to Phoenix, there was a problem there with some things you said. Um, I don't remember exactly what you were asked about. No, there were, there were posters that, uh, right. that were put up in the election. Okay. Which, which again were... Okay. John, John um, so you mentioned empowerment you didn't say black economic empowerment or black empowerment up to now since the end of apartheid when you say empowerment we're talking about the empowerment of black people and i i'm i'm, I'm thinking that black must i imagine that includes what they call political black colored people indian people <laughs> is the da's post anc empowerment policy a race-based policy no it's not a race-based policy and we don't believe that race-based policies have worked um, black South African households are 10% poorer now than they were at the beginning of the BEE uh, regime. And, and a black unemployment has grown dramatically. Um, I think that race-based policies is like trying to, you know, fix a gunshot wound by shooting the person again. Uh, you know, you don't deal with the, the effects of race-based policies by adding on more race-based policies. Mm -hmm. And we, our focus is on poverty as the measure. We've got 30 million people that live in poverty in South Africa. Because of our history, 99.7% of them happen to be black. Yeah. Um, but if you focus on, on poverty as the measure, you cut out the fat cats and the elite, and you focus like a laser beam on the people who need government's empowerment the most, uh, people who, who live below the poverty line. And it's not this is not rocket science or something new. It's how the NISFA system works in South Africa. Yeah. It's how yeah. the SASA system works. It's how the qualification for uh, inclusionary housing works. It doesn't look at the person's race. It does a means test. And those are the people who need, who need the empowerment most. And so our focus is not on race, it's on poverty. Okay. The point is that if you focus on poverty, 99.7% of the people are going to be black South Africans, but you're not going to be re-empowering the Ramaphosas, the Motsepes, the, uh, you know, the uh, black industrialists. Right, right. Keep getting, you know, these empowerment. You're going yeah. to actually spread, spread it a lot further. I, I totally agree with you. We are tired. I'm tired of race-based policies, but anyway, I'm the interviewer here. <laughs> so, John, uh, you guys are in control of the Western Cape, and there, are, uh, there seems to be a strong movement to to push for Cape independence. What is the view of that? I'm sure you're aware of it. I am aware of it, and I think it's a pop dream, to be honest with you. And I think that the energy being expended on trying to uh, break away the Cape from the rest of the country would be far better expended on fighting for greater federal powers for uh, provincial and local government. That is an easy fight to win. If you look around the world, whether it's Scotland or Catalonia or Quebec and Canada, these mm -hmm. debates have been raging for years, sometimes right. hundreds of years. 
right. uh, over independence. I believe that the energy must be spent on taking power away from national government, particularly where it's failing, and devolving that to greater powers to local government and to provincial government, particularly around policing, around rail transport and, and right. integrated transport, and around ports and harbors. Um, which I think are, are appallingly managed. And I think what you will then do through that devolution of power is give greater autonomy to the provinces to be able to deliver on those mandates far more effectively than national government can. Uh, it, to break the Cape away, you'd need to have one of the longest, hardest borders in Africa. Um, and it, it, just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think that many people have a romantic notion about it. I would rather see those organizations working harder with the DA to fight for greater federal powers, not only for the Western Cape, mm -hmm. but for other provinces, many of whom are going to fall to opposition governments in the next election. Gauteng, for instance, is a one-seat majority in the legislature. Right. That will fall in the next election. I want those same provincial and local powers possible for Joburg and Gauteng uh, as they would be in the Western Cape. We've got a duty to save the whole of South Africa. I want to turn the whole of South Africa into the Western mm -hmm. Cape. And it's the only reason, sorry, to just make this last point, sorry yeah. if I'm being verbose, the only reason you have a Free the Cape movement is because they've tasted, felt, and experienced DA government. You don't mm -hmm. see free, a Free Limpopo or Free KZN or, you know, let's secede to Gauteng. It's because people have felt the DA difference there uh, that they're now saying, well, we don't want to be part of the mess that is South Africa. We want this government. So, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a fair than the yeah. cap on the DA, but we're now victims of that success with this uh, particular movement. I want to talk a bit about the so many things with you, John. God, uh, the Eastern Cape. I mean, we know uh, that there are many people who move from the Eastern Cape to find a better life in the Eastern, in, in the Western Cape. It is what it is. Uh, these people run away from ANC-run municipalities and the provincial government in the Western Cape, in the Eastern Cape. Are you guys, as a DA, positioning yourself? in the Eastern Cape to create a province that is that is as successful, hopefully, and or it is well run, well, well managed, relatively well run, well managed as the as Western Cape? Or how are you doing to say, especially for the poor mayor of Cape Town who has so many resources, just like Mashaba had the resources in Johannesburg, but he didn't know how many people he was catering to. It's the same thing is happening to Cape Town. What do you think should happen? But I think it's an imperative to fix the Eastern Cape. And, and let me just say that I think the Eastern Cape is one of the provinces in the country that's got the most potential. And it's devastating to see uh, that being squandered by poor governance and maladministration. They've got incredible people. They've got wonderful resources. And they've got incredible coastline and massive, massive talent in that province. It's just been mismanaged. Um, we would love to build the Eastern Cape. And in fact, you know, we... Uh, have done so in the Koka municipality, which is around Jeffreys Bay, which is the right. DRN municipality. It's the only municipality in the province that has a clean, uh, clean audit and is able to uh, point to being a successful local government. And Auditor General regularly points it out. Nelson Mandela Bay was on an upwards trajectory when we were in power there. And uh, that has sadly now been reversed uh, since we've been out of power there, six days away from running out of water, the first major metropolitan city in the world to run out of water. And that's all the result of mismanagement. So, you know, we want to be able to get into power in as many places as possible so that we can demonstrate that, that difference. We got an increased majority in Koha municipality this last election because the people, they have confidence in our ability to govern. I'm very sad what happened in Nelson Mandela Bay, where the vote got fragmented to such a degree that it's virtually impossible to cobble something together. And right. the ANC are making hay from that. But absolutely, not only the Eastern Cape, we want to fix KZN and Northern northern Province, Northern Cape. All these provinces deserve good government that's going to work for them and not for the politicians. But ultimately, John, it's up to the political parties like the, Africa, the, like the Democratic Alliance to convince voters that they can give them a better deal, right? It's not, I mean, of course, we come from a history where many, especially Black people in South Africa, have grown up with the idea of the ANC being their savior. And a lot of them, many of them have walked away from the ANC, thankfully. Many of them still remain emotionally attached to the idea of the ANC. We, you guys in the opposition parties need to come to raise the volume of, the, of your messaging and the appeal of it in order for people to realize that South Africa can still be okay without the ANC. Do you agree? 
I agree completely. And I think it is one of the areas that we've we've needed to work on a lot better is making the compelling case for why you should vote for us. I think in the last elections, we've seen a large stay away vote. And I think a large chunk of that are former ANC voters who, who don't want to vote for the ANC, but have not been able to bring themselves to vote for another political party. Right. We have to make our case better. We've got to demonstrate where we govern that we govern better. And we've got to go and, and convince them not to stay away but to come out and, and vote. And I think there's particularly potential amongst the 18 to 35 year old age group there to convince those people to come out and vote, to be able to demonstrate to them that their vote is linked to a better life and that if they want opportunities, they've got to go out and vote for them. Um, and I, I think it is an area that the opposition and the DA needs to work on better, which is why I've been focusing like a laser beam on not talking about ethereal topics uh, and getting involved in these endless debates about who's a better liberal than the next person. I want to focus on the bread and butter issues, fuel, fuel price increases, food. So I took the food, the basic food stuff into parliament and right. confronted Cyril Bramaposa with it. Said, this is what ordinary South Africans are eating and this is how much it's gone up. What are you going to do about it? And I think driving the issues that matter most to people on the ground driving the issues that people are talking about around the dining room table, in the Shabin, around the, the bra place or at a restaurant, and we can give voice to those issues, I think there's going to be electoral gold for a party like the DA. And that's why I've deliberately positioned the party more as an on-the-ground, effective party, driving key issues that matter to ordinary South Africans and not these endless debates that matter to politicians, but which don't put food on the table and don't actually matter to ordinary people on the ground. Yeah, thank you. So uh, let, let's go back to the Western Cape. Uh, the Western Cape, well, first of all, my first question there is, do you agree that colored people were not white enough under apartheid and that they're not black enough in the new dispensation? Yeah, I do think that there is an element of that. And I think it's reflected in that growing dissatisfaction in that community. Um, and I also think it's a product, Solly, of what happens when resources dry up and opportunities dwindle, is that people retreat into race groups, narrow safe spaces of culture, tradition, and language. And I think we've seen that happening, uh, particularly in the colored community in the Western Cape. And it's, it's, it's referenced by the emergence of uh, nationalist parties there, like the PA and, and uh, the sort of uh, the Cape uh, Coloured Congress and, and those parties. Right. And what happens when resources dwindle and dry up and people don't feel they're getting a fair deal? I think the way to overcome that is by growing the economy and creating more opportunity rather than saying, well, I'm not getting opportunities because I've got a certain colour. We've got to you know, grow, the, grow the opportunity so that there's enough to go around for everybody. Um, I do think there's a sense of alienation and a, and a feeling of being marginalized. And we're working very, very hard to overcome that as a party in government in the Western Cape. And we try and reflect that in our leadership in, in the Western Cape, as well as our, um, our councils, et cetera, and appointments that we make to try and you know, show that this is not the case and that you know, we're better together rather than retreating into little nationalistic or tribal or language groups. Right. Um... You know, the Western Cape was officially a colored preference area during apartheid. Now, my sense is that there are still many people who consider themselves colored, who seem to want those privileges, those colored privileges to continue. Mm. They think colored people must be privileged in, 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 in the Western Cape. And then, then you have the conflict with accusations leveled at the DA, generally from outside, the, uh, you know, Gauteng and other places where they say, you don't pay attention to a black Kukuletu, Kalicha, all those black um, townships. So are you finding yourself having to please the colors at the expense of the so-called black Africans in Cape Town? Western no. Cape? No, because we don't give preference uh, on the basis of race. It's done on, on ability and, and need. Um, and I would just like to say, I mean, the, the criticism um, is Guguletu and Kailicha where we would like it to be? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But I think if you compare a Guguletu and Kailicha with an Umlazi and a Kwamashu, I think that the level of service, um, the quality of, uh, of, of service from the city and the province is far higher than they receive. Yeah, but be careful with that's that. Not, that's not, yeah, I'm, I'm being careful. I'm saying it's not okay. to say that, you know, that that's something to be proud of. I'm saying it is a measure of the fact that we accept there's work to be done 
And we're not there yet by a long way. And that's why a large portion of the budget in the city of Cape Town goes towards providing services in those areas. They don't necessarily vote for the DA, but that's it's irrespective of that, that oh. we've got a, a duty as a government to roll out those services. And we will continue to do so because it is the right thing to do. And I think there's a long road to go to deal with the spatial inequality that still exists as a result of the apartheid policies, and that we've got to work every day to overcome them. Um, are we there yet? Absolutely not. Are we further down the road than many other places in the country? I would say that would be a fair assessment. But I think it's also, in fairness, we need to have a conversation about a seemingly growing phenomenon, phenomenon in certain, some of these black townships in Cape Town, where people say the fire brigades come in to, to put over a fire, ambulance people get attacked. I don't know, are they instigators, the instigators behind these activities? How does the, the city of Cape Town get to provide the services needed in these townships when the people get who get sent there to help provide the services get attacked? We need to talk about that, right? Yeah, of course we do. And I, I think it's about, it's about you know, obviously work needs to be done on conscientizing people about how devastating it is. And we're having to now send security services with ambulance and uh, fire personnel, even the fire in Langa on the way there, uh, the fire brigade was stoned. I don't know why people want houses to burn and, and people to suffer, but there clearly is an element of that there. And I think we've got to get to the root of what is driving it and what we can do to assuage those, uh, those particular fears. Um, one of the suggestions we made that, that the, some of the fires are deliberately set because it allows people to jump the queue for, uh, for housing opportunities. Uh, I would hope that's not the case because there is genuinely a human cost to, to that strategy and, and, and it's devastating. It literally tears people's lives apart. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, and I don't want to use the term social compact because I think it's completely abused, but I do think there needs to be a a greater engagement with understanding what is driving that that particular behavior and and what you can do to you know to disprove the the theory that is being and and so that when someone starts throwing stones at a fire brigade that the community themselves you know deal with that person and say what you're doing right. is wrong this isn't right. right so john uh cape town or the western cape has had or have had problems with gang violence, and a lot of it seems to be, I'm not saying it's exclusive to Cape Town, we're talking Cape Town here. No, no, yeah. A lot of it seems to be linked to drug, you know, organized crime, drug laws who, are, who seem to be running the an, an underworld economy or, you know, in Cape Town. And the the, the government, government of well, the Western province of Cape Town and the city of Cape Town seem unable to root out these gang violence, this gang violence, why? And, and, and I, let, me, let me just say to my question, many of these gang leaders, who are some of them are notoriously known in South Africa for any Cape Town, seem to own some lavish businesses in the city, nightclubs and, and, and beach areas where people go spend a lot of money. So they feed the beast all the time. How do you deal with this? Is, it, is there anything new that the DA can propose to, to root out drugs and the underworld in Cape Town, and also this dissuade people from spending money in the, the businesses they own in order to to launder their drug money that kills children in 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 in, in Kuguletu, in in, uh, in 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 Michelle's Plain, in all of these places. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it is a problem, and it is one of the frustrations that we have that you run a province and you get into office and you know, they're the levers of government, but that you can manipulate to change things, but some of them are glassed off. Uh, and one of these is, is policing. And it, you know, it is a function of national government and we're at the mercy of the national police authority. And that's one of the reasons why we believe there should be police reform right. and that you should allow more localized policing to take place. The, part, the, the province has got no say on the deployment of police resources in, in the Western Cape. Yeah. Its role is reduced to monitoring and oversight, um, and there's nothing around deployment. But you know, Solly, we can't just sit on our hands and do nothing about it, which is why the province and the city, through a partnership now, have deployed a thousand new police officers in the Western Cape. And the pilot project for this was Langa, 
uh, sorry, sorry, not Langa, Inyanga, far more preferable to trying to police from a national level. And I'll give you an example. Um, the drug trade is, and the gun trade is firmly linked to the Parliament trade. Uh, the city, you know, is, and the and the province have now had to fund units to go and do per, deal with parliament poaching because we understand that it's linked very much to that that very same underworld. Right. And so I think that the key lies in the, the solution lies in giving greater power of policing to cities and provinces, and and giving them greater ability to deploy those resources. The police to population ratio at Guguleto and Kalicha is amongst the worst in South Africa. Um, yeah. Why is national government resisting this to give you guys more power? You I'm, not and sure other I'm not sure why they do it. I think they probably enjoy the fact that there's, there's this crime problem in, in, a, in a province not governed by them. Right. Uh, but I think that that's short-sighted because it's uh, they also have voters that live in yeah. those communities. But yeah. I don't under, what I don't understand is why every international practice and best practice example shows that by devolving policing to a local level, it has a far greater impact on moving the needle against yeah, crime. Definitely, definitely. And I think that, that, you know, that is why the city's not sitting back. For instance, trains. Mm. And we need commuters to use trains in Cape Town because it's a very efficient, cheap way of moving large numbers of people to work opportunities. Mm -hmm. And again, rail's not a, national, not a local or provincial competence. It's a national competence. But the cities had to now put police officers on those trains to keep commuters safe from being mugged while they're traveling to and from work. Not because but, it's our function, but because yeah. these are citizens who voted for us and expect us to do something about it. Yeah, so that's why you need, you guys in the opposition or benches, you need to work harder to get in there and change, implement the systemic changes such as these. Because while the ANC runs the national pairs and national policies, it doesn't seem to understand that there are changes that need to be made. It's like so stubbornly holding on to old ideas. You guys have to work really, really hard to get in there and take away this power, these powers from the African National I Congress. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, you know, that's the thing that frustrates me about the president so much. You know, I really was greatly hopeful that finally, when he got elected, we were going to see the reforms being initiated. You cannot point to a single major reform that President Ramaphosa has driven in the last four years that has moved the needle in any significant way. He has introduced the size of his cabinet, mm -hmm. uh, and he's now got a sub-cabinet. I, I don't know if you're aware, but he set yeah, up- Yeah, I'm aware of it. I mean, I... 28, 28 <laughs> presidential task teams, commissions, to do the work that his cabinet's not doing. Yeah. So now you, you know, 80 members of the cabinet, uh, of the executive, and now, now you've got, you know, these 27 task teams that are now doing the work that the cabinet should be doing. And it's really disappointing because that reform agenda is necessary. I really believe that if we don't reform South Africa and make some tough and better choices in the coming years, there's going to be very little room to maneuver afterwards. And that's why 2024 for us, I think, is going to be a make or break election for South Africa. There's another five years of the current trajectory, Solly. I'm not sure what's going to be waiting at the end of that. Okay, uh, we, we have about five minutes before we finish, but the number of uh, one question people keep asking, and John, you know, the DA, I suppose, over the ANC, hangs the shadow of corruption and nepotism, all of that stuff that we know. Over the, sh the, the, the head of the DA hangs the, the matter of what do you guys do? Why do you keep losing black leaders? What's going on? Is this a culture thing? One, that's one thing. Two, John Stenerson is not really the leader of the DA. Helen Zilla is it. So the Zilla effect, <laughs> I know you hear it all the time, but I have to put it to you, John. Yeah, People no, yeah. keep thinking that you have a shadow of Helen Zilla thing on left to the right, go forward, don't do this. Is it true? I was going on. Is, are you, first of all, role, I, uh, and you guys hold on to black leaders too. Is Helen Zilla the real leader of the DA? I'd rather have Helen Zilla hanging over my shoulder than Jacob Zuma, as Mr. Let's do the first one. Uh, you know, this this notion that there's an exodus of black leaders, it's just simply, you know, not, it's not borne out by the facts. We have many more people that have joined us and have been promoted and are on the front benches of parliament and, and the like than, than have left us. Uh, there's actually actually been more white leaders that have left us than, than black mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. um, look, I, mean, I think that there comes a time in the day where sometimes people need to understand that the value fit for them is not, you know, not where they want to be. And the party, I think, has spent a lot of time since the 2019 um, bloody nose we got in the election, uh, re-establishing its roots, understanding and being far more clear about 
who we are and what we're about. I think the party drifted off and leading into 2019, trying to be everything to everybody. And it ended up being nothing to anybody and very unclear about what we were, were doing. And I think that as that clarity of purpose starts to, starts to realign, um, I think it is, uh, you're, you're going to see people who no longer feel that this is for them. And that's fine. It's, it's a natural thing in politics. People leave big parties all the right. time. They come and go. And yes, it's just unfortunate that there's a racial bent on this always. Uh, you know, there wasn't the same scrutiny when Mike Waters, uh, you know, left Parliament. There wasn't the same scrutiny, uh, you know, when, when other people have, uh, you know, have left. Right. Um, some of them, you know, Musi Maimani made a choice to leave. He wasn't mm -hmm. forced to leave. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was an internal report that said that, you know, there were leadership deficits and he needed to face them. Uh, it, the federal executive had full confidence in him and, you know, there was no need for him to stand down. He chose to chose to do but, it out of his But own. that report that you're referring to is a bit problematic for me in my analysis, all right? I, I think that you, and you said it yourself earlier, two minutes ago, the DA under Musim Maimani was beginning to have the kind of conversations that would help positioning it as a potential replacement to the African National Congress. And once you start having those conversations, John, some people will say, uh-uh, we don't want those. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't be the, no, the a potential replacement to the ANC and still the, remain the ANC for the DA of 10, 15 years ago, right? So what, of course. So you, need, you guys, when you lost in, in the last elections, you needed to say to yourselves, all those people that we're going to, all that weight that we're going to shed, it's going away. It means that we're having the right uh, conversations in order to position ourselves to be the most attractive party for more black people, because there's no way that we can lead South Africa if we don't have more black people that are following you. Of course, of course not, sorry. And so so why did you not look at it that way? Instead, you seem to have looked at it as a failure of leadership. We mm -hmm. lost so many people. Those people had to go, because you're already saying, what kind of party do you want to be to become the replacement to the ANC? The problem is we lost votes across the board, Solly. So, I mean, there's one right. thing about, you know, dumping some voters and, and, and gaining others on the swings. We lost on the swings and the roundabouts. Mm -hmm. And that was because people were ambivalent about who we were and we were uh, very unsure about, about what we were trying to be. And I think that a clarity of purpose and a clarity of policy uh, was absolutely essential. Um, I, there are people in South Africa who are very conservative and hanker after an apartheid past. They are not welcome in the DA, and, the, and the, the DA will be a very unwelcoming place for them because oh. we believe in merit and diversity and making sure that, 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 that the DA represents uh, all of South Africa. It would have been very easy for the DA after the last election to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to retreat now into some sort of right-wing lager and, you know, trying to, we haven't done that. We've gone out actively now with, with a policy proposal that would include more black people in the economy. Uh, I think that black South Africans will be far better off under a DA policy regime than they currently are under the African National Congress's policy regime. And we have to do that. We also have spent a lot of time growing our own timber. If you look at a lot of the people who come in and leave, Solly, they're people who are have been parachuted in. Um, they come into the party. And then at the first time they have some adversity, they, they're the first to leave. I look at people now, my deputy chief whip and our national spokesperson, Saviwe Guarube. She came through our Young Leaders Program and has built her career. People like Soli Malazzi, people like Soli Mzamanga, all people are coming to the fore now in our federal executives and our key positions who, who have shared the values of the party and understand what needs to be done and are not just simply looking for positions and power. And I'm very right. proud to work with, with those people. And those are, are the people that you're going to see in the coming weeks and months who start to take on a far more prominent role because I've been very clear um, that you know the party's got to be more than the leader um, the party's yeah. got to be uh, you, you you have been losing people you have been losing people to action essay in recent months are you worried about that do you think it's no, a trend that's going to continue not, you know, I'm not worried about it at all and I think there are a few more uh, particularly in Gauteng that you're going to see jumping over I think they are they're ideologically there already um, and that's fine. I mean, we, we, they, people, if they want to be in another party, they must, they must be in another party. I'm not worried about action, I said, or because I think they've still got to pass some, some tests. Right. It's not a democracy there. Herman Mashaba is the self-appointed leader of Action SA. All their provincial leaders are appointed by Herman. Um, there's no internal democracy. And I think that the party is very much in its embryonic stages, and it's still going to start to be ravaged by... Uh, by the same thing that's bedeviled all political parties, 
Uh, Mr. Millen, it seems to be growing. I mean, if you look at by recent by elections, the, the 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 action essay seems to be growing. It seems to be like the fastest growing party. Look at Soweto, well, for it's instance. Very, it's very easy to be a, the fastest growing party when you're coming off a base of zero. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that that the last by election in Soweto, where they said they were going to take the ward and only they were big enough to beat the ANC, well, they were pushed into third place by the uh, by the EFF. Right. Um, you know, I think they mustn't overpromise and underdeliver. And as I say, the party's got a long way to go. Um, and also, I think they're giving they they're in the sweetheart stage of their relationship with the, like the honeymoon stage. Yes, a honeymoon stage. I mean, if I'd got rid of Makosi Causa in the way that Herman Mashaba got rid of Herman Makosi Causa, you can imagine the headlines uh, that would have been out there. Right. You know, and victimizing you know black talented women. Instead, yeah, you're you know, racist. The media glossed over the fact that you know she was booted out of that party, despite having been the face of their campaign in KwaZulu Natal. Yeah, I didn't. But, but I'm not sure that she's a very she's a, she's a quite a character that lady. But that's a discussion for another interview. Yeah, that is a that's a that's a discussion for a whole another show. Um, yeah. <laughs> John, John, is there anything that you hoped I would ask you that you would like to say that I haven't asked you? I mean, I really wanted to talk about energy, your, your support of renewable versus fossil fuels. Are you are you guys working at showing using the Cape Town, the Western Cape, as an example, for instance, to pull to 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 become less dependent of the grid? We haven't spoken about Eskom. I mean, I, yeah. no. Well, I mean, Eskom is a big that is a big specter that's looming over South Africa and yeah. you know, the heart of unemployment and and inability and and inability to do the job. We already are in Cape Town uh, have a. Uh, hydroelectric power plant that allows us to keep and shield citizens. But here's the thing. We're not going to wait anymore for Gwede Mantashe, the king of coal, uh, to um, you know move forward on this issue. Right. We've got to shield our businesses and our residents from load shedding. It is devastating to the economy. It's job shedding of, a, of an epic proportions. Mm -hmm. And so we've got six municipalities now that we've said, go out and become Eskom free as far as possible. And they are in a race now to do it. The top two contenders are Cape Town and Stellenbosch. And they're in a, in a fight to the finish to see who can be the first municipality to be load shedding free uh, in South Africa. And we, the days of us going to court and asking government if we can move into the space are over. I've given instructions to the party that we will move into that space and government must take us to court and yeah. convince the court why it's wrong for a municipality to keep the lights on to keep the factories open and to keep the jobs going. And I think that would be a very interesting case. But we can't okay. sit back and wait for national government anymore. But you also need to say, and this is my last question, hopefully, you also need to save residents of Cape Town. And I'm one of them, okay? I live in uh, in Europe now, in Sustain, because I've been hounded out, I have to say, yeah, by, by people in the name of the ANC out of South Africa. Uh, but I, my home is in Weinbeck, Cape Town, John, okay? And the residents there, my neighbors and i'm sure other neighbors across the province and maybe the country are being threatened by street people homeless people okay i mean where do you draw the balance between being humane in dealing with you know and having being afraid to walk in your own on your own pavement in your own neighborhood because you get stabbed i was robbed i was in south africa in april i was mm. attacked by people with guns and knives they took my bike mm. in my well, neighborhood Yes, they took my bicycle. I had big knives and a gun facing me. What do we do? I gave them my bike. I had to run. I ran on my streets. I was able to, there was a time when I was able to ride or to go for a jog in my neighborhood. I can't now. You can't anymore. People, I'm still in my neighborhood. Watch, John. Homeless people had taken over the streets of Cape Town. What are you guys doing about it? Well, it's a very frustrating, and I'm really sorry to hear about your experience, Solly, um, because people need their bikes in South Africa now because of the petrol price. But to say that um, COVID has been has made things very, very difficult. And one of the reasons that we're fighting the um, national state of disaster that is still in is that you can't evict people, you can't move people along. And the city's lost two court cases already in the last week. We, the rate tip, we pay rates and taxes. Exactly, exactly. And that is the problem. Uh, is that the city's power is to move people along and move uh, homeless people back to shelters. And it's not because there's no shelters. There's plenty of shelters. There's no city in the world, sorry, in, in, the, in the country that has social workers out on the street. But our hands are tired, particularly with homeless. And I, I, I feel your pain. I, I live in Seapoint. So 
you know, I, I feel the, the same issues around uh, a vagrancy, homelessness and the like. And it is very frustrating. And we're hoping that we can get these national disaster regulations lifted so we can actually start to, to deal decisively with the issue. The reality is there's no reason for anyone to be living on the streets in Cape Town. The Kulemborg shelters um, under the bridges and the main, uh, main city centre provide plenty of accommodation and counselling. They just don't allow you to use drugs inside that. There's a big program on trying to repatriate people with their families, particularly street people. But as long as people know that the city's powerless to move them along, the more emboldened they're going to be. And yeah. uh, it, it is a huge frustration, I know, for the mayor particularly. Um, and it's a huge frustration for the council. And we're under a lot of heat from residents, and rightly so. It's not the residents' fault. They And they're right to express themselves to the councillors and, and to the leaders in that But the, the residents are also right to, to, to expect safety and, 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 and health. I mean, people come in and defecate in public places. They, you, you, they rob, you people are, they lock themselves in their homes. It shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't just be the rights of the homeless. It should also be the rights of those people who pay their rates and taxes to the city of Cape Town. Well, exactly. And one of the suggestions I made was that perhaps we should find out those judges who keep ruling against the city. We should find out where they live and let the homeless people go and live on their verge. Um, yeah. Because, you know, maybe they need to feel uh, what it's like for ordinary citizens to live under siege. And my PA uh, stays in, in Woodstock and there's a square that's been occupied there. They can't even leave their, they can't even leave their house in the evening because they're essentially barricaded in by, uh, by homeless uh, people who get very aggressive when uh, they don't provide food or water to them. Yeah. So uh, you know, it's, it's not, and I think there has to be a balance of rights that the courts in the Western Cape have not got right yet. And I think the judgments continuously against the city's actions and dealing with this are unhelpful and are going to lead to a situation of greater lawlessness. Yeah. John, uh, you are the leader of the official opposition. It's normal that a conversation with you may is potentially endless, but we, this is so much we can cover for today. And I really appreciate you for having made the time to be to be here. And you've been quite candid, uh, forthright, and I appreciate it every moment, moment of it. And to our listeners out there, if you've if you're still this far in this conversation with uh, John Steinhazen, it's because you've had a good time, because your own perspective has been broadened about the world. And, um, and I thank you for staying with us. If you liked what you've heard, continue supporting us. You can even email, email us at uh, worldview.help at gmail.com to support this channel. It's a very independent channel. Uh, and, and I thank you. Stay with us. John, thank you very much. And my name is Soli Moing, as you know from Worldview. Thanks, Solly. It's great to be with you. And thanks for the opportunity to engage with your listeners as well and the people watching uh, wherever they are in the world. And look forward to the next one.